you know, when I talk to activists, I'm just like, fucking learn economics. Even bullshit bourgeois neoclassical economics, at least understanding the shit they're selling is important. Welcome. Welcome. From Alpha, From alpha to, omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 28th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 23rd of March, 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show has been brought to you by the most generous monthly subscribers. You too can join the illustrious list of benefactors by clicking on the donate button on the podcast website. And you can also follow the show on Twitter or over on Facebook. Today's guest is C. Derek Varn, poet, lecturer and resident of South Korea. He also writes for the Disloyal Opposition blog and includes among his interests alternative visions of the future, the failures of national Marxism, early Leninism and the relationship between anarchism and Marxism. Derek has also just interviewed myself for his blog where I get to expound a few of my own opinions for a change. I've included a link to the interview in the show notes. We joined the conversation as Derek is telling us who the hell were the Mensheviks and their buddies, the Bolsheviks. The Mensheviks are social democrats more in the line of what will become the German Social Democratic Party. They were more willing to warm up to liberal parties. They were much more afraid of um, violent revolutionary change, and they were much more willing to work with capitalists. They were largely fueled by um, the theories of Edward and Kalski from the German Social Democratic Party, and uh, they had a theory of gradual evolution from capitalism to communism. Uh, not all Mensheviks believe that. There's actually a great deal more diversity in both the Menshevik and Bolshevik opinions. Basically, that breaks down to, in practical terms, did you support the liberal provisional government or did you not? That's like the dividing line. Trotsky, for example, super famous Bolshevik, was a Menshevik at one time. He was also a good social democrat at one time, as was Lenin. So the Bolsheviks themselves started off as a faction within the same overarching party as the Mensheviks did. So it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated than the simple picture that a lot of people have where the, the Bolsheviks being proto-Stalinist and the, the Mensheviks somehow being proto-Northern European Social Democrats are coexisting in a party and they turn their guns on each other immediately after the overthrow of the Tsar. That's not really what happened, but that's more or less the breakdown. So I was watching a video on YouTube of Chomsky a while ago, and he was asked a question about Lenin's role in Russia. Chomsky, I think it's fair to say, was not a fan of Lenin. I was wondering if you could talk about Chomsky's critique. Yeah, Chomsky's critique is really complicated and actually also really not complicated. I mean, Chomsky doesn't engage with Marxism very well. He says a lot of things about Marxism dismissively and yet also says things about Marxism that are not dismissive of all, like he sees himself as part of a libertarian socialist tradition, which a lot of Marxists were part of. 
But he's also been on the record as saying he sees Marxism as something that belongs in the history of organized religion, and any ism with a name attached to it actually is just a religion. So that's pretty vapid. I think Chomsky's narrative on, on Lenin is pretty standard. I think a lot of liberals believe it. I think even a lot of non-sectarian Marxists believe it. But I don't think it's true. I think there's like a bunch of mystification involved in that. But to get deeper, he specifically says that Lenin was the right wing of the Social Democratic Party, the Bolshevik split from. Chomsky says that uh, Lenin took over in a coup, and he implies that he immediately suppressed other political parties. That's not exactly true. He also says that the Lenin in, in State and Revolution is almost an anarchist, and the Lenin and what is to be done is not. That's a little bit more complicated. There are some differences between the two writings, but I don't want to bore your readers by going to a lot of minutiae, but they're not as, as different as Chomsky says they are. They accuse the Bolsheviks of pretty much just being opportunists. They talk about some of the suppressions of other parties after 1921, which is true. Chomsky particularly does. And then he talks about Lenin's errors and not um, waiting for the revolution in Russia to go on with the worldwide revolution elsewhere. But he does admit that Lenin believed that the worldwide revolution was coming and that it was only given up after Stalin took power in 1924. That, you know, there's a lot in there. The, the interesting thing about Chomsky's narrative is that the same narrative you'll hear from Robert Service or even maybe Richard Pipes, who have very, let's just say, conservative views on the Russian revolution, with the exception that they would say that Leninism is Marxism and that you can bring it all back to Marxism and Trotsky would, would be more ambivalent on that subject. Although just ambivalent, he, he's not clear on whether or not he thinks Marxism ultimately was a good or bad thing. What are your opinions on Lenin and his actions then in that period? My opinions on Lenin in that period are really complicated because you're dealing with a situation where you're under attack by international powers you are also in a three-way civil war with the Ukrainian anarchist nationalists with the White Army and the czarist slash military dictatorship crowd, and with international powers playing in all sides of it, particularly just after World War One. So it's, it's a crazy time period. Now, a lot of people use this to just as a carte blanche excuse for anything Lenin did, and I don't think you can do that. He did make mistakes. He saw he made mistakes, even. And right before his death, he released a document that pretty much con didn't condemn but strongly criticized all the factions in the Bolshevik Party, including Trotsky, but said that he was afraid of the centralization of power into the general secretary of the Communist Party under Stalin and that Stalin should be removed. There's also writings prior to that, after they make the multiple factions within the party illegal during the Civil War, that he thought that this should be undone that it was necessary during the Civil War, but only during the Civil War, and that polarity of opinions should be reinstated. So, you know, we have these writings, we have these actually confirmed from the archive openings in Perestroika. There was a lot of stuff in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that claimed that this stuff was all Trotskyist fabrication. It wasn't. Um, we now know that. There are some complicating factors to it, but, you know, that's more or less what's going on. I don't know that when people talk about Leninism now, that it is necessarily applicable to today's situation. Leninism is a, is a form of organization that deals with a revolutionary faction of a party in a time 
of extreme monarchy. It's not, you're not dealing with a liberal democratic country. And even after the overthrow of the Tsar, the provisional government was making concessions to various parts of the army. And we do also have documents now that indicated there are elements of the army who are going to try to coup the uh, liberal provisional government. So it's not necessarily something that makes sense for all time. And that complicates things greatly. You know, when you talk about Leninism in the abstract as a set of principles of the vanguard party, that idea is not unique to Lenin, by the way. That really comes from uh, Karl Kalski or the uh, democratic centralism or the idea of uh, encouraging proletarian culture and consciousness. Those things specifically, they may not be applicable to, you know, political and even revolutionary struggles and liberal democracies. It's... It's hard to say, but what it is, is fundamentally sort of dishonest to paint Bolshevism, particularly early Bolshevism prior to 1924, as an attempt to install a dictatorship and a centralized party ruled by a person. That was true in the Bolshevik party after 1917 until probably 1924, even after the banning of of the various tendencies, which are basically sub-parties. Um, in 1921, during the Civil War, they still allowed open speech. There was still wide division of power between the various parts of the party. Trotsky, Stalin, Lenin, Zinoviev, all actually had pretty significant power within the party. And while Lenin was more or less considered the head, he couldn't, by fiat, just declare things. Him and Trotsky actually made a lot of important decisions based on uh, war powers during the Civil War. But it wasn't like during Stalin's period where one man could just order the executions without consulting anybody. It's not how it worked. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the Vanguard Party and its theoretical implications. The Vanguard Party comes out of an interpretation of the Communist Manifesto by Karl Koski and the German Social Democratic Party. The view of the time was that false consciousness or bad education or religion or a bunch of other social factors have clouded people's judgment. And that given that the workers' consciousnesses were just as formed by capitalism as the capitalists were, that a party would have to go out and sort of educate the general public. Now, the original role of the Vampire Party, as Kowski saw it and as early Lenin saw it, was just educational. It was a centralized party, but it was the idea that you'd have to go out, educate people in economics, social theory, history, science, to be able to really start the workers to be able to rule themselves. You know, to talk about the drudgery of work and the dulling of the senses and the effects of religion, and there's a lot of stuff going into that. Lenin pretty much takes that solely from Kowski, even though Kowski and Lenin are pretty much political enemies by World War I. But they're political enemies because, not because of the Vanguard Party, actually, but because of disagreements over whether or not the communists and socialists should have supported any states in World War I. And when Kowski went along with the Kaiser and Bismarck, Lenin actually denounced that as a, betrayal, as a betrayal of internationalism, and some of their ties were broken, but the Vanguard Party was never dropped. Now... The idea of the Vanguard Party becomes later on, particularly under Stalin, after 1924, the idea that you should suppress other political tendencies and centralize leadership, not just educational purpose, but sort of totality. There should be one state ideology. There should be one party. This has a lot of influence later on. 
the East Asia is hard to understand unless you understand the effect this actually had. Because almost all the parties, including what we would consider right-wing parties, or maybe even Asian fascist parties, with the exception of those from Japan, were organized on Leninist lines, as seen by Stalin. So you're not just dealing with Mao's Communist Party, but also the Kuomintang of Chiang Kai-shek, which is a right-wing party, and the People's Action Party of Singapore are organized under that interpretation of the Vanguard Party. So it, it affects more than just communism and socialism. But it's important to remember that the German Social Democrats saw themselves as a Vanguard Party too until after 1921, in which case they started distancing themselves from that phrase. What are the limitations then, do you think, of the Vanguard model today, given that our political and economic situation is radically changed? It's hard to say. If, if you mean Vanguard Party is solely an educational apparatus, I don't know that you need a party for that. You do need a committed bunch of people to do that. You do need to be fairly disciplined, but I don't know that the party has the same power that it used to have. I mean, th these parties that we're talking about in the early 20th century, they were total social groups. They had soccer things. I mean, they did all kinds of things together. They tied the trade unions together. They did a lot of things that parties don't do now. So if you look at the American political parties or the political parties in the UK, they don't serve these same social functions. Okay, that's one thing. Another thing is communication technologies are vastly different now. I can do more with a podcast even than I can with an academic journal, and I can do a lot more with an academic journal than I can with a Z or a party newspaper. All right? And a lot of these parties still pretty much you know, run on selling their party newspaper. There's that. Furthermore, it's a lot harder to be a conspiratorial party now. Transparency is just a fact of life. And that's both good and bad, but unless you're already in power, it's very hard to stay in secret in that centralized of a fashion. It just doesn't make as much sense as an organizational form. I think it did make sense at the beginning of the 20th century. And I think a lot of people who decry the Vanguard Party now they're crying more than that. They're not just decrying, you know, what I would critique here. They're a lot of times decrying the idea of any political representation that's organized at all. But it's still something that you have to be honest with. Running a modern political party along the lines of a conspiratorial tendency within a larger party in a oppressive dictatorship, it's just not necessarily historically sound. I think that that's expandable to other situations. It's not good historical materialism. So do we not see some type of a vanguardism in normal, typical parties? Like if you look to, say, the Labour Party in England, how Tony Blair and the New Labour Project took over the party and changed it from within. Uh, yes, you would definitely see. Vanguardism is actually totally common. It wouldn't be called that. I mean, that's Marxist talk, but it's totally common within all parties. I joke, actually, that the Republican Party in the United States may be the most Leninist party in the you know, stereotypical right-wing imagination of what Leninism is on the planet. It stays on message. It educates according to its own needs. It has a pretty strong centralized messaging apparatus, and its internal workings are pretty much opaque to all the outside world. Party vanguardism is how most parties operate. The Labour Party, too. The DNC, faction within Democrats, which completely realign the Democratic Party from a sort of soft union party to a more neoliberal friendly, but also identity politics friendly party of the early 90s that led us to what we have today. You could see those as functioning 
in a sense of a vanguard, like just like the early Social Democrats or the early Bolsheviks did. One of the problems then with Vanguard Party revolutions was that once they achieved power, the power was highly centralised. Did anybody manage to, say, decentralise any of that power? At this point, it's hard to say. In the Bolsheviks, there was definitely an attempt to. Unfortunately, we don't know what happened because Lenin dies. In the case of China, there are actually various factions within the Chinese Communist Party. They can be ideologically wildly different. But it's still a one-party state in the negative sense of the term. It's a lot harder to say. And then the pluralist vanguard revolutions, such as the attempted revolution in Germany, right before and right after the Weimar Republic, which led to, say, you know, Rosa Luxemburg's death, for example, those just didn't succeed. So there is a strong doubt as to whether or not it could be successful now. I tend to think the parties themselves are harder to justify now. You know, workers' parties sound ideal, but in the places where they're established, they become small sectarian organizations. Usually, if they actually have seats in any parliament, they just throw their votes with the slightly more liberal or social democratic, but still pretty much capitalist parties within the parliament, too. There's not a whole lot of hope there right now. I mean, there's just not. I wish I thought there was, actually. It would make me feel better for our organizational chances. Because other forms of organization so far, including things like Occupy, have been too nebulous, unable to react, and unable to deal with real problems on the ground. We're kind of at an impasse. We, we need another organizational form. We don't have it yet. And I don't think this is hagiographic to, to say this, but I think Lenin would have encouraged us to have another form because it's about what enables the oppressed and particularly workers to seize, to seize the economy. To, to actually run their own lives. And if we can't practically do that, with centralized party bureaucracies are with even educational parties, then it doesn't work anymore. And in the case of the Soviets, there's no way you can argue that it didn't have a long-term negative effect on the Soviet Union. Even if you're a Stalinist, all right, you have to admit that Stalin eradicated too many of his best and brightest in his own party for the party to function after he died. I actually do know Maoists. They come out of a tradition that's still part of that tradition, and they will admit to you that the purges completely weakened the Soviet Union. That's what led to Khrushchev. There's no way that you can say that it's working that way now. What replaces it, I don't know. 
You know, but when Marx was critiquing the early socialists, he didn't know what was going to replace it either. I mean, you know, there's one of the things about Marxism. Most of Marx's writings are either critiques of capitalism or they're critiques of other socialists who don't quite see what they're advocating. And he didn't know exactly what was going to replace that either. He actually says many points in his writing, he says you probably can't know that it's foolish to play games of prediction with that. I was wondering if you could explain the rationale then behind, say, Mao's cultural revolution and how that works within the vanguard party. The cultural revolution, that's a completely different problem. The cultural revolution was seen as a necessary play to get rid of a managerial class within communism. It was to get rid of a class of managers that have emerged under both the Soviet Union and the early Chinese Communist Party's embrace of Taylorism and like proto-capitalism. This gets to some obscure parts of Marxist theory, but basically there had been no bourgeois revolution in China until there was also simultaneously the Communist Revolution. That complicates Marxian theory because a lot of Marxian theory thinks that bourgeois revolution is necessary. Marx actually doesn't say that, but that was sort of passing theory at the time. And so there was this attempt to de-bourgeoisify both what they thought was infiltrating elements from the Commandant, which Mao may or may not act, have actually believed in, or sort of nascent capitalist tendencies that emerged from just having a technocratic orientation. The Cultural Revolution was to purge that and to purge like lingering Confucianism and other religious ideas from the society. Now, if that's a complicated thing. I don't want to sound like a malapologist because I'm not. A lot of what happened in the Cultural Revolution is horrifying, and a lot of what happened in the Cultural Revolution does seem to look like it just empowers Mao's faction. But there's a couple things you need to know. One, the purges in the Cultural Revolution were not like the purges in the Stalinist period. One, Deng Xiaoping was still alive by the end of them. That's crucial. Deng Xiaoping was removed from party leadership more than once and also reinstated by Mao more than once. There were also multiple factions, all encouraged by Mao and to a lesser extent by uh, Zhao Enlai during the same time. But what the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution does, there are a lot of scars in society, particularly in the rural areas, things actually get much worse. They're not as overseen and there's a sort of ideological zealotry that leads to whole groups, whole families, whole minority groups who are associated with being rich or capitalist having retributive action against them. Then there's the fact that so many people kill themselves as a result of the castigations. That's a little bit hard to understand in our society. One of the weird things about the Cultural Revolution is that if certain traditional Chinese cultural mores were not in place, such as the severe shame of losing face in public, the death toll of the Cultural Revolution probably would have been much lower. The other thing is that Mao couldn't figure out a way out of the production model that created the need for managers in the first place. That's important because pretty much it means Mao is failing on a practical tenet of Marxism in this regard. And I know a lot of Maoists who are going to get really angry at me for saying this, but he didn't change material conditions, you know, the way you organize society enough to both provide for his people, which he was interested in doing, even if you had the most cynical reading of Mao. He wasn't out to starve his people. That's, that's just insane. He would lose his power base. No, what was going on there is that he couldn't quite come up with a way to replace factory production. So the very thing he's trying to root out, he also needs to provide for his society. 
Furthermore, he also increasingly centralizes power in himself. And um, in the same problem that you have with Stalin, when he dies, there's a power vacuum. It's a little bit more complicated in the case of the, the Chinese Revolution because Mao, while he was obviously the top dog in China, he was not the only major power, even in the height of the Cultural Revolution. Zhou Enlai was untouchable. Also, some of his military generals that were very supportive of the Cultural Revolution, such as Lin Biao, were also really particularly powerful and even may have tried to coup him. It's not quite the centralization you see in the Soviet Union under Stalin, but it is still a pretty strong centralization of power. And in that vacuum, you see Deng Xiaoping's liberalization. Now, there's a couple of ironic things about Deng Xiaoping's liberalization. One, it's Deng Xiaoping, not Mao, who actually formally ends free speech in China. During the Cultural Revolution, on paper, you had free speech. I don't know to the extent that this was actually true. It's very hard if you don't read Chinese to parse the reality of free speech in China. But there were dissenting factions who were allowed some speech. That actually ends when Deng Xiaoping takes power. Again, even if you have the most Mao-friendly point of view, you have to admit that something went very wrong with the organizational centralization under Mao because it couldn't survive Mao. And the very people, the very sort of engineer class in the Communist Party that he was most aiming at rooting out, take over. There's no way to get around that. So even with a sympathetic reading of Mao, you're left with the obvious truth that it didn't work, ultimately. They didn't get rid of the technocrats. In fact, if anything, they took more power than they would in some capitalist democracies, even though you've seen similar developments there too. Can we understand then maybe the Cultural Revolution as a way to kind of constantly keep the forms of the society from ossifying into a, a proto-capitalist kind of class structure? Yeah, it was seen as the way to keep another class from developing. And how many died in this Cultural Revolution? It's really hard to know. It depends on how you count the numbers. Now, the upper estimates that you read in, say, the Black Book of Communism are frankly impossible. We don't have consensus data for China before the 1960s. We have a lot of the statistical ways that those were calculated involve potential births and loss of potential births versus what we see at the end of the Cultural Revolution. It's also hard to know how many died of famine. While things were actually improving in China under Mao's watch as far as uh, agricultural output goes, particularly actually more in the Cultural Revolution than in the prior period. But China was still periodically wracked by famine in the countryside. And those deaths are usually counted against Mao too. But you're still looking at, I mean, you're still looking at millions of people. There's really no way around that. I don't think you're necessarily looking at millions of people who died because of active persecution, but you're still, you're still looking at millions of people. I don't, I hesitate to give hard numbers though, because I've read numbers that vary in two or three million and the number that they count. And I also think when you say compare Maoist China to India or even to like the Dust Bowl US, you don't have people holding Indian politicians or Roosevelt accountable for all the deaths of famine during the 1960s and 70s in India or during um, the Great Depression in the United States. Those are just not counted the same way. I don't like making comparisons, but there's no way to get around it. It, it was a human tragedy. If we look then to, say, all the successful radical revolutions that we've had over the last century, what percentage of those used 
the vanguard model in all of its forms, say from Leninism to, say, Guevaraism? During the revolutionary period, I would say almost all of them. Immediately after the revolution is when it is what seems to matter. If you can reopen up a pluralistic society without a Themidorian reaction, it seems to be the question. The models historically are not super good. You see similar trends in bourgeois revolutions. I mean, it's important to, to really look at that. So if you look at the United States or France or the various national revolutions in the 19th century, they also kind of don't fare so well in immediate transition. Uh, the United States is sort of a, a relatively bloodless one if you don't count the blood of slaves and native peoples, which of course you should. But for you know the people of similar nationality, it wasn't that bad, but it did have to rely on what is genocide to perpetuate, had to expand. In France, you have Femidor, you have all kinds of negative outcomes. So I don't know, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I tend to think that we tend to see the Vanguard Party as sort of a uniquely Marxist idea. I think it is, it's slightly different from other forms, but the basic idea of a party revolution, that seems to come with modernity itself. And the long-term success rate are there any finished revolutions? Are there any revolutions that actually have achieved their goals? The bourgeois revolutions didn't. We're not in a world with a huge communist society either. So, you know, there is a point to be sort of not so happy about the last two centuries of revolution. That said, I mean, the world that's produced is probably infinitely better than the world that existed before. Even the capitalist world, as bad as it is, but none of the revolutions have been finished. Maybe that's because of the party form. Maybe that's because no one's ever figured out, as of yet, a way to come up with an alternate you know, mode of production other than value and surplus value extraction. We haven't really come up with a new organizational principle since the end of mercantilism. You know, I'm not going to say that the Soviet Union didn't try. I'm not even going to say that the Soviet Union was necessarily a state capitalist society, but it was still organized around the collectivization of a surplus value extraction. If you read Critique of the Goethe Program, if you read Das Kapital, you kind of realize that's not going to be enough. It doesn't fundamentally change society just to collectivize a bad system, even if that bad system may be better than the system that was before it. So why do you think there is such a kind of fetishism of the vanguard party in any of the radical Marxist parties that still exist today? if we have such copious evidence of their failures once they essentially seize power? I think, honestly, there's a fetishization of that because those revolutions were the only revolutions that even got off the ground. I mean, it's not like there weren't other attempts at revolution. You can look at like 1848, for example. But those end in bloodbath. And usually after the bloodbath, there's a stronger reaction than even the sort of conservative government that was there before. So there's that. There's that history. There's also a certain amount of, particularly now that the Soviet Union is gone, and capitalism seems to be regressing faster than normal, a certain amount of nostalgia, I think, almost, for a time when the left was strong, when it could actually do something, when there was a danger to a state. It is natural to sort of go to things that weren't before, but again, I think that's bad historical materialism. You're not looking at the fact that history changes over time. Marx would argue, for example, that the bourgeois revolutions of, you know, of France and of the United States, they weren't bad, they were incomplete, and they were necessarily incomplete because the form of production that they produced would reinstate a class system, the system that we have. The capitalists exploiting the proletariat, the rentiers exploiting the peasants, the lumpen proletariat exploiting everyone, 
and also being exploited themselves. But the initial promise of those revolutions, the breaking down of feudalism, the ending of arbitrary rules based on religion, that was liberatory in its moment. It just wasn't liberatory for very long, particularly when the Industrial Revolution accelerated its processes. And that's, that's important to keep in mind. So if we think about Marx's materialism, if the conditions of society are in a different state, we should probably see different formations and different strategies that will coalesce around the existing structure of societies. Do you see any that pique your interest? There's a couple of ideas going on. I think there's the idea of revisiting the party and changing it to making it something more along the lines of what we need now, what that party would actually look like. I think the failures of Occupy and the failures of the anti-war movement were actually steps in the right direction, even though I do think you can safely say they were failures, and some of them pretty naive failures. But they did show us both the potential for beginning organization and the potential for sort of new ways of thinking about left-wing action that wasn't involving parties. That said, they didn't figure out a way to mobilize to police threats and to government conspiracies very fast. I mean, we now know that the FBI was working with Democratic governors and local police to clamp down on Occupy all at the same time. And, you know, Occupy had no way to handle that. But that idea, that motivating idea seemed to bring people together in a way that, frankly, you know, uh, your average party, be it the Democrats or the SWP, just can't. His name's John, and my name's Edward. His name's John, and my name's Edward. And together we are Checkmate! I've got a scar at the top of my leg. I have a scar on my nose. And John, John has a pointy ear. John has a pointy ear. My two teeth here cross over, cross over. And he has straighter teeth than me. And right now, Adam has spots. And I don't. And I don't. His name's John. And my name's Edward. And together we are Jedward! His name's John. And my name's Edward. And together we are What do you think, or do you have any thoughts on the five-star movement that's breaking out in Italy under Beppe Grillo's leadership? I'm really mixed on that. You know, there's there's a lot of accusations that the five-star movement has fascist sympathies. That they do have an association with autarky, but they're also pretty good at, you know, at a similarly left-wing response to a growing right in Italy. And I mean, a right that's really powerful, and not just in the major parties that surround Bolsonaro was sort of an enlivened neo-fascist movement. And they've been good at responding to that. But I, I do wonder about movements that are separatists in that regard. I do think right now separating from the EU may be necessary for a lot of, I hate to say periphery, but a lot of your periphery. Those pigs. Yeah, those pigs. You know, your, your homeland happens to be one of, sadly. But um, there is a need for monetary self-rule. 
weirdly, the, the EU has somehow managed to instill the, dis- the discipline, quote unquote, of a gold standard without actually having one. And that Italian response to that is purely healthy. Do I think it's an answer? In the long run, no, I don't. But I think it's something you have to be willing to talk about. And not being willing to talk about it leads to things like Shiraz and Greece, which I think that's going to be much more tragic than Italy. Italy is looking bad, but Greece is looking abysmal. I mean, it's almost making the current government look like the Weimar Republic. Italy are lucky enough to be large enough to take the whole ship down. Right. You know, Greece can be crushed. Greece can be crushed, and Greece doesn't really have the, the actual ability of autarky either. It doesn't produce enough to be able to, to have an economy that could survive a currency devaluation of leaving the euro. Now, it could if it had never joined. It would have had relative currency control. But once it's joined, if it leaves, it won't be the way of Argentina. No one will invest in its currency. You're likely to see hyperinflation. That, that's a real threat. But, you know, what does the Raza really have? I mean, it had a pretty strong coalition. But, you know, the longer it can't do anything, the stronger you see Golden Dawn getting more powerful. It's really sad. But yes, Italy ha- has the power. It's, it's a large economy. It has some clout. Will it use it? I don't know. I'm hoping it'll try. The next few years are going to be highly destabilizing for everybody. There's no way around that. The Five Star Movement doesn't allow anybody who has previously been involved in politics to become a representative. And they can only stay in for two terms. Like this seems to be a total rejection of the form of political representation that is inherent in all Western countries at at the present. And the Occupy movement spoke to the same thing where it was an entirely flat organisation where there was no form of representation. There is obviously something at play here across these different movements where there is nearly a, a total rejection of the form of politics in its current formation. I would say that's true. I would actually say that's true both left and right. The Tea Party in the United States, even though it was co-opted from nearly the beginning, was a rejection of the sort of party centralism in the United States. It was a right-wing rejection, although given the way populist anger is in the United States, that was to be expected, but it was a rejection. Occupy comes out of the same frustration. Occupy is a lot harder to co-opt, though. It's hard to see if that's enough, but it's definitely, again, a step in the right direction. One of the things you have as parliamentary democracies and congressional democracies tend to linger on is there is a rigidification over time, particularly when there's lots of money involved. And there's a lot more money in the United States than even in Europe. And also you see a stronger lingering of incumbency. I think it could be useful, and it is definitely speaking to a real frustration people have. I tend to think representative democracy itself is going to lead to this frustration, but again, we're talking about you know doing away with a former government before we know what will replace it. Um, you know, when you say you don't like representative democracy, people automatically assume you're for a party dictatorship of a person or something, and I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But definitely, people are frustrated. The Five Star Movement may be more realistic than the Occupy Movement in that it it does have some vertical politics. It's not just horizontal and thus has some ability to organize and adapt to change in accordance with situations quickly in ways that totally consensus-driven organizations just are non-organizations, the case may be, just can't do. But you have to do something. I mean, there's, a, there's another problem in the U.S. particularly is that the unionism is just essentially dead. 
The amount of uh, unionized workers in the U.S. is less than 20%. The, the rates, even in Europe, aren't stellar, although they're much better than that. And so that form of organization as resistance to the worst deprivations of capitalism doesn't work either. So you're going to need something like that. You're going to need a, also a movement that's willing to wield power, not just in the political realm. And I think that's important. You can't just win seats. I don't know enough about the five-star movement's current politics, but I do know this is one thing that the far right's actually better at. They are very good at offering basically lifestyle systems, their own charities and other organizations. Also, Islamists in the Middle East are good at this too. And it's something that left-wingers just haven't really got back into their system. Occupy sort of broke that up. You have to deal with other problems. I don't like the way Occupy's dealt with a lot of problems. We can go into specific critiques about that, but at least it realized that NGOs and parties were not going to meet, you know, we're not going to generate enough political will or goodwill amongst the populace to get your message out. It's just, it just won't work. It doesn't, it doesn't do enough. And the right wing um, in Europe and in the United States has been much better at this. You know, the Republican Party's main party base was that they were willing to work with churches as well as businesses as forms of organization. While the Democrats, even though demographically they should be stronger, have only recently started organizing that way, and particularly after the Democrats themselves put some of the death nails in the union movement, uh, although the union movement in some ways earned it in the United States too, it's hard to see how any of that by itself is going enough. So yes, in that sense, it's all a step in the right direction. It's just the first step. I fully believe, even though I think the scale of problems that we have are enormous, and there is a likelihood the left won't actually win in the long run. And that sort of scares me, because I, I actually think ultimately that's devastating, not just to our economies, but probably to the planet. People are beginning to realize the limitations of the last three or four decades of inertia. I mean, basically, organization on the left sort of fell down in the 70s and is only really beginning to pick itself up, only really beginning to be critical of its own sort of habits. I mean, not just, you know, your, your little Marxist-Leninist parties, you know, mini parties, that you know, people have been critical of that for years, but also critical of entryism, the idea that you could, like, somehow enter the Labor Party or the Democrats and through a caucus have a whole lot of influence, the ideas of using NGOs and unions as your primary other means of distribution and power. These just things don't seem to work anymore. And I think Occupy and the Five Star Movement and a lot of other movements actually are beginning to try to look at this. But even with that, you have to be careful that that alone is not enough. That alone doesn't even ensure a left-wing outcome, actually. Any of these things can go right-wing. can, and there are forces that would love them to. You have to be vigilant in that regard. And you have to learn from the lessons of the past. I mean, when you look at Leninism and you look at Lenin, you know, you can have a glowing opinion of Lenin, which I do. But you have to be realistic about what's happened in the past with certain forms of organization. And you have to really look at what that's done and what that hasn't done. And I think that's going to be a cold shower for a lot of, a lot of people who've been in the left for a long time because they've invested in these ideas. It's part of their identity. And to break from that's going to hurt psychologically. And really what's going to make people break with it is the conditions on the ground are going to make you. You either do or you don't. And if you don't, you won't succeed. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you, Derek, for coming on the show today. Thank you. I think that's been a big failure. The economics, particularly after Mao. After Maoism, there's a big focus on culture on the left, even now. 
from a lot of different European Maoist theorists who really shift the focus, starting from Althusser up through Badu. And you just have to move away from dealing with economics at all. I mean, I think that's a big problem, honestly. Because the conditions are usually economics founded in the materialism. Right. I mean, ecology is important. I actually think, you know, if one thing I would say Marxism has been kind of weak on, it hasn't really dealt with ecology enough. That Marx does get into that in Capital, but Marxism itself doesn't, and it leads to some really horrible, you know, ecological tragedies in Central Asia. I have sand blowing in from the Gobi Desert from policies during the Great Leap Forward that come in and settle in Seoul today, that during spring make the air almost unbelievable. Azerbaijan is uh, pretty much a oil wasteland. Those are material conditions. You know, when I talk to activists, I'm just like, fucking learn economics. Even bullshit bourgeois neoclassical economics, at least understanding the shit that's selling. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and the track Vanguard Party by Jumper. You also heard that most influential of Irish duos, Jedward, singing, Together We Are Jedward. And you are now listening to the funk classic, Love Will Bring Us Back Together, by Roy Ayers. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Won't you come on home?